If you would, take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 15. John 15, that's on page 901 in your pew Bible. The title of the sermon this morning is Abiding in Christ, or if we could use Paul's language, it would be Union with Christ. What does it mean that we abide in him? Uh, Jesus is using this language. It's used elsewhere in the scriptures. How are we united to him, and how are we to continually abide in him? Paul in Romans 6 says, the old man is gone, the new man has come, the new man has new responsibilities and new abilities that he did not previously have. So the assumption of this passage here is that he's, talk, he's talking to his disciples, so he's talking to Christians, he's talking to followers. It's not, how am I saved, it's, you're saved, now how are you supposed to live? <laughs> Namely, what are we going to do now that Jesus has just told us that he's going to die on the cross and go up to heaven? How are we going to get all this work done that he's called us to do? You're going to abide. That's how you're going to do it. With that in mind, let me read for us the first 11 verses of of John 15. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak to us through it and by your spirit today. We ask that each and every day we would abide in you. We would find our hope and joy and our identity in all that you have done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Laura and I have two crepe myrtle trees that flank our garage at our home. And we noticed a few months ago that it was time to prune these crepe myrtle trees. They had gotten a little out of hand. Not to mention the fact that some squirrels had found these trees useful for running up the top, jumping on our roof, and then into the attic. And we didn't want that anymore. We're not really green thumb people, particularly me is not a green thumb person, so, but I do try my best, and of course in this case by try my best I mean I noticed how the guy down the street pruned his crepe myrtle trees and I assumed he knew what he was doing, so I decided to prune mine just as he had. That was not a good idea. Nevertheless, I pruned the crepe myrtle trees. I gathered the branches and took them down to the street, very pleased with myself, waiting on Lauren to return home and admire my work. She returned home, and there wasn't much admiring that happened. She was skeptical that I had done it correctly, and what made matters worse was she went inside, she began to research how you're appropriately to prune crepe myrtle trees, and she read the warning, don't commit crepe murder. 
Didn't know if you knew that. That's actually a term. You can murder the trees, so to speak, by pruning them back too far to where they won't grow or their growth is very hindered. And I said, honey, let's just, let's, let's just wait and see. Aside from the fact she accused me of being a crate murderer, we had to move on from that. And I said, well, let's just wait. Let's see if over the next few weeks and months, maybe I am guilty of crate murder homicide, or maybe these trees really will grow back. I can tell you as of a few weeks ago, there's some little tiny green shoots that have started to come out. So I'm hopeful, but we'll just have to wait and see. How do you know a tree or a flower or a plant is healthy? It's bearing fruit. It's green. It's flowering. There's proof. It's obvious that a plant is doing well because it's growing and it's flowering and it's bearing fruit. And Jesus is saying essentially the same thing. You're the branches and I am the vine. If you're abiding in me, you're going to be flowering. You're going to be bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. The illustration, I think, is obvious here. Jesus uses the word abide, minnow, in the Greek, which means to abide or to remain. He uses that ten times in our passage. A good Bible study tip. Obviously, the scriptures don't have bold print. They don't put anything in all caps, right? So we've got to look for little tools to help us. What's the emphasis that the author is trying to get at? Repetition is that emphasis. If we see a word or a phrase that's repeated, it's kind of flashing lights. This is really important. This is the point of the passage. And that, of course, is true here. Christ is saying, abide in me. As branches abide in the vine, we abide in Christ who is the true vine. This, what Jesus is teaching here, is a part of what we call the upper room discourse. It's sort of his farewell address, if you will, to his disciples. There's several discourses that Jesus gives in the New Testament. There's the Sermon on the Mount. There's the discourse in the Mount of Olives, and there's the upper room. Beginning in verse 13 and all the way through the end of chapter, excuse me, beginning in chapter 13 and all the way through the end of chapter 17, he's in there, he's, he's instituting the Lord's Supper and he's giving these last nuggets that he wants his disciples to know because he's about to leave. He's about to be crucified, and his disciples remain, and Jesus is expecting them, he's commanding them, to continue his ministry and to continue to grow the kingdom of God. No doubt they ask themselves, well, Jesus, how are we going to do this? It's, it's been easy. You've been here. You've told us what to do, and you've told us where to go, and you've told us the people to talk to. You won't be here physically any longer. And Jesus is saying, that's right, but I will be here spiritually with you. And, as he said back in chapter 14, I'm sending a helper to you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit so you can recall all the things that I've taught you and you can be empowered to do this. I am going away, and you will ask yourselves, how are we going to do this? You're going to do it by abiding. Three points this morning. The first is the picture of abiding in Christ. You get the illustration, I realize. You understand the connection of vines to branches. But what did all that mean to a, to a Jewish person in the first century? We need to go deeper. We need to understand and unpack all that that looked like. This first point, I'll just tell you, it's informational. I, I've got to set the context on the stage. The application will come in the second two points. So number one, the picture of abiding in Christ. I found it interesting reading uh, chapter 14 Verse 31, so the last verse of chapter 14, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. Okay, guys, time to go. It's time to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's time for me to be betrayed and to give give myself up and to be crucified. But they don't actually get up to leave till the beginning of chapter 18. 
What, what's going on here? Why, why didn't they get up when Jesus said to get up? Well, we're, did all this happen as they're walking to the garden? Maybe. Was, was John ordering things thematically rather than chronologically? Maybe. I tend to think it's something that you and I do every single time we have friends and family over to our house. Someone finally says, okay, it's time to go. And you stand up and you walk to the door and somebody says, well, let me tell you this. And, and you talk for 30 more minutes, right? And you, and you continue to visit. And then somebody says, well, no, we really do need to go. And you walk out to your car, but you stand by the car and you continue to talk and share stories while the kids play out in the front yard. And then you finally get in the car, but you roll the windows down and you keep talking. It, and finally, two hours later, you actually leave. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. It's and another thing, guys, let me tell you, and, and there, here's something else that you need to know, and, and don't forget this. And, and finally, in chapter 17, he says, okay, let's pray. <laughs> let's pray and close our time together. This is the seventh and last of John's I am statements that he records in his gospel. The seven, Jesus is referring to himself, I am. It's, it, he didn't, that's not by accident. I am, that's the name of God. He says, I am the bread of life in chapter 6. I am the light of the world in chapters 8 and 9. I am the door and I am the good shepherd, he says in chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14. And now in 15, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Jesus is giving his disciples and us a word picture. It's something that they would have immediately attached to Old Testament imagery that we don't realize when we, when we read this. The vine was a metaphor for the nation of Israel. God calls the nation of Israel his vine. He planted it, he tended to it, he cared for it, and he provided for it. The Gospels show that much of the teaching of the Old Testament with respect to Israel has been fulfilled in Jesus. So we could say, when he says of himself, I am the true vine, he's really saying, I am the true Israel. I am the one, I am the true child. I am the one that has come to be all the things that Israel was supposed to be to the nations. I have fulfilled the righteousness that Israel was called to fulfill but did not. Psalm chapter 80 lays this out for us. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches, and on and on we could go. Israel is the vine. This is not just a nice word picture. Jesus is saying something more. As Jesus and the disciples would have left the upper room on the western end of the city of Jerusalem, they would have walked down through the city and out the eastern gate and down the Kidron Valley and over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when they did, they very likely would have passed the temple, this beautiful temple. And on the front door of the temple is what? An enormous vine a golden vine with grapes attached to it. So again, he could have passed by and said, I am the vine. I am the true vine. I am the true Israel. He's making a powerful point to the disciples here. Israel is no longer your identity, guys. Speaking to the 11 disciples, Judas has since left and betrayed him. All the plans are now in the workings. Israel's not your identity anymore, guys. I'm going to get off the cross and you're not going to be a Jew. You're going to be a Christian. The, the old covenant system of Israel is over. The new covenant system of the people of God and the church is now beginning. And it's starting with you. You 11 guys, you're going to go out and fulfill this great commission. 
that I have called, you're going to do all the things, I'm going to do through you all the things that Israel was supposed to do and supposed to be. Jesus is taking the vineyard from Israel and giving it to these 11 men and to the church. I am the vine, Jesus says. Israel didn't obey God. I will do it perfectly. Israel would not produce the fruit of righteousness. I will be known as the righteous one. Israel would not pursue the nations as the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I will be all that Israel failed to be. And now in the church, I will be through the church all that Israel was to be. Jesus is saying that the only way you're going to make it in this world without me is to abide in me. You know, I think this is one of the deepest and one of the most difficult lessons to be learned in the Christian life. That you can't do anything of eternal or kingdom value apart from Jesus Christ. We don't want to hear that. We want to think that there's something great in and of us. Spiritually speaking, there is not. You can only do it if you are connected to the vine and abiding in the vine. Are you? Are you abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because we can't do anything that pleases God. We, we can't do anything that helps the kingdom apart from him. Number two, the power of abiding in Christ. Where are we going to get the power to do this? And what are we going to do? So let's state the question plainly. How do we know, how do you know, if you're saved? How do you know that, and how are you sure that salvation has been applied to your soul? Is it a feeling that you have? Well, maybe a feeling that comes with it, but that's not adequate to explain. Are you abiding in Christ by faith? And if you are, you will see fruit. How do you know that you're saved? You bear fruit. You bear fruit according to the gospel. You are called now as Christians to work and to give effort. Those are two words in the church today that we have become, for some reason, allergic to. We're allergic to words like effort and work and ought to and should. We assume that these words are somehow antithetical to the gospel, but they are not. They are results of the gospel. We're not saying work really hard and Jesus will love you. We're saying he loves you, he saved you, now work really hard because you now can. You used to not be able to. You used to be able to do nothing because you were apart from the vine. Now you're connected to the vine. Look all the things that you can do now for the kingdom of God. I'm not saying you're saved by your works. I'm saying you're saved for works. Christians are called to be productive. This theme is declared so often in the New Testament that to deny it could only be seen as an intentional misreading of the Bible. R.C. Sproul tells a story one time of a student that took one of his exams, was a little nervous about turning the exam in, and so he wrote a note to Professor Sproul at the bottom of his exam that said this, Dear Professor, I did not prepare adequately for this examination, and I'm so sorry. I won't let it happen again. Please be merciful to me because I really do love Jesus. (laughs) In responding to this, he says in his commentary on John, this student was making the argument that I should not require responsible behavior from him because of his profession of faith in Christ. He responds to the student by writing this note at the bottom. I'm delighted to hear of the state of your soul. And I hope you've grasped the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But when grading my students, I practice justification by works alone. (laughs) Indeed. 
Let us not think just because we are Christians, we are in the church, we are in Christian ministry, that we don't have to be concerned about productivity. We do. It's a mandate from Christ to be productive. He has saved us from the futility of our minds and our lives and saved us to be fruitful. Jesus declares that our productivity and fruitfulness is directly linked to our abiding in him. The closer we stay to Christ, the more fruit we will bear. The further we pull ourselves away, the less. But there may be a lingering question you have in your own mind. I think it really jumps off the pages here. It says that the vine dresser comes through the vineyard and there are some branches attached to the vine that are dead. And he cuts them away, he binds them up, and he burns them. And there are other branches that he prunes. So what are these branches? If we assume that all branches are Christians, we have a problem. Then the answer to could I lose my salvation would be yes. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here at all. It could be, and I think it is, that this is a reference to If you're in the vineyard, you're a part of the visible church. John, of all the Gospels, makes clear that not everyone is going to be saved, and you cannot, indeed, lose your salvation. Chapter 6 is clear on this. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are my true disciples. Therefore, there are disciples, and there are true disciples. There are branches, and then there are true branches. There are those that appear to be abiding that are not, and we can see that because they're not bearing fruit, and the ones that truly are abiding. I think one of the things that we need to take more seriously in this country, and perhaps even in this church, is coming to church. We need to come to church. You're going to have a really difficult time, I think, saying that you abide in Christ when you are so rarely even in the vineyard When you so rarely are coming, I realize to a certain extent I'm preaching to the choir right now because you're here. But it's the importance of coming and abiding. He has promised to meet us here. He has promised to meet us in the preaching of his word. He's promised to meet us in fellowship and in the sacraments. If I'm not getting that, then how can I be abiding? We need to be here. So God the vine dresser comes through and he examines. He examines each of the branches to some he cuts away, and he binds them up, and he, and he burns them. This, is, this should make us tremble, quite frankly. It's the consequence of being a nominal Christian, one that is just one in name only. There's no substance. There's no fruit. For the healthy ones, it's still painful because he prunes. His true disciples will be the ones bearing fruit. Well, what does that mean? I know I've used that phrase several times. What are we talking about when we say bear fruit? I believe Jesus is referring here to the fruit of the Spirit. It's what he's just addressed the work of the Spirit back in chapter 14. Some say it's the fruit of evangelism. Perhaps that's probably in view, but I think specific focus is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Do you see those things in your life? Do you love God? Do you love other people? Are you faithful to his word? Are you kind? Are you peaceful and joyful? Not all the time, but do you see it in an increasing way in your life since you've become a Christian? There's more peacefulness. There's more joy, a a satisfaction in Christ and what he has done for me. Only you can assess that. Perhaps your spouse and closest friends could add their opinion as well. 
We bear fruit by abiding in Christ. And God's not satisfied with a little bit. He wants a lot of fruit. He wants his kingdom to grow. He wants you to do great things for him and to bring him glory. And he gets that by pruning. And what is involved in pruning? Pain. It's painful. And sometimes that pain is because of sin, and other times it's because he wants you to bear more fruit. And he's got to take you through those trials so that you'll bear more for him. Whatever the reason for pruning, we don't want it. Because our natural self says, I don't want anything painful, so I hope I can avoid such things. But afflictions in this life would stop only if they were useless. They're not useless, so they won't stop. What else do we need to know about pruning? God's hand is never closer to us than when he is pruning the vine. His hand is upon you as he prunes. He's not far and distant and, and, and out of earshot of your prayers. He's close to you. He hears this, but it's for your good and for your benefit. You know, we all have something that we're going through right now. You talk about it with your friends over lunch. You talk about it with your family. You email, you text. We are all dealing with something that's painful and that hurts. We have a decision that we need to make soon, and we, we don't know what to do. We aren't sure what the, where the Lord is leading us. We have a difficult season of marriage. It's hard, far harder than we ever thought it would be. We can't seem to get along. Maybe it's, that's it for you. We have a difficult child that's trying our patience. It's financial struggles that we think there's no way we're ever going to get out of this. Or maybe it's doubts of faith. You know, I read in the Bible, it, it says that God is good, but that sure hasn't been my experience of him. He hasn't seemed to be good to me. My advice to you as your pastor, abide in him. Despite all those things, abide. Because what he's doing right now with you is he's pruning you. And it's hard, and it hurts, and it's painful. He's forcing you to trust him. Yes, his pruning knife is upon you, but he's close. He's near. And he loves you. So exactly now, how are we to abide? I've told you the fruit of it, of course. I've painted the picture, I hope. I have, I've shown you the power whereby we can abide, the fruit we're supposed to bear. Well, what do we do? How do we get there? Lastly, point number three, the point of abiding in Christ. You know, we ask a lot of the same questions that the disciples did of Jesus. How, how are we going to grow the kingdom? How are we going to reach Macon for Christ? How are we going to, to add to our numbers here? How are, we, how are we going to be faithful in all that we do? How are we going to make the decisions that we need to make? We're going to abide. Well, how are we supposed to do that? Verse 7. To abide in Christ, number one, is to abide in his word. Anyone who's abiding in Christ knows what his word says. It's as if we're saying, Jesus, what do you mean abide in me? Open your Bible and read. Read what he says. Hide those things in your heart. Memorize the scriptures. Love the scriptures. And it's not hard to understand that such a person will then receive whatever he asks. Why? It's not that, well, this is fantastic. I can ask whatever I want. I would like a black Mercedes four-door sedan. Incidentally, that's exactly what I would like in life. I would like a black Mercedes four-door sedan. That's not what it's talking about here. It's saying, I have studied the Word, I have understand the way that God is revealing Himself in the Scriptures, that my will is now in tune with His own. And so the things that I ask are the things that He wants. 
But how am I going to know that if I don't know his word? A true Christian has an absolute confidence in God's word, and he knows what it says. Secondly, to abide in Christ is to bear fruit and to prove to be Christ's disciples, verse 8. It's a little bit of a repetition of the second point, but it's what verse 8 says. It's a proving ground that you are indeed one of Christ's disciples. Personal faith in Christ, confidence in his word leads to obedience. Jesus is not asking you to be perfect. He knows that our faith can be weak. He knows that we struggle with things in his word, but he's still telling you to abide. J.C. Ryle says, Jesus is asking us to do this. Abide in me. Cling to me. Stick fast to me. Live the life of close and intimate communion with me. Get nearer to me. Roll every burden on me. Cast your whole weight on me. And never let go your hold on me for a moment. No, we can't be perfect, but let's not also fall into the trap of being lazy and thinking there's nothing we can do that pleases God. Well, that's also not true. We absolutely please him. When we do things by faith, it pleases our God. Thirdly, to abide in Christ is to abide in his love. We never stray from the realization that Jesus loves us. And we spend time reflecting, reflecting on this. We find comfort and joy. We, maybe we even sing the kids' song that you might find silly, but it's actually wonderful. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a kid's song, but it's also great theology. <laughs> Jesus loves me. How do you know that? The Bible tells me so. That's right. That's exactly right. He loves us. Do we reflect on that? A true Christian knows that Christ died on the cross. He did everything necessary to be done to forgive me of my sins. He's paid the penalty. He's achieved perfect righteousness. And he's promising to bring me to heaven. There's nothing more that needs to be done. How do I respond to that? I obey him. I give myself to him. I come and worship. I abide in the places he has chosen and commanded that I meet with him. And then verse 11 is sort of the climax, climactic moment of it all. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There's a fullness of joy that he wants for us if we believe this. It's not a momentary passing joy. It's, it's a satisfaction, a fullness of joy. You know, this passage is, I hope, a spiritual thermometer for us today for you to use to assess your Christian life, that we might even use to assess our church life. Are we abiding? Are we bearing fruit? And are we doing these things? Are we abiding in his word, abiding in obedience, and abiding in his love? For all of us here, there's either a warning, a reality check, or an encouragement. The warning is for those who don't bear fruit. The warning's very simple. If you aren't bearing fruit, the Father will come by and will cut you away. The reality check is for Christians who think that pruning is somehow abnormal to the Christian life. Let's be honest. We idolize comfort. We quite quite literally worship it. We want to be comfortable. And so the moment something in life isn't comfortable, we assume, because we've convinced ourselves, that something has gone terribly wrong, God is mad, and the whole plan's been blown up. No, this passage is saying that the pruning... The discomfort of life is normal. It's a part of the normal Christian life, we might say. It's not extraordinary. The encouragement then is if we abide, 
we will continue to bear fruit and receive nourishment from the vine. If I'm going to abide in Christ, I must meet with and commune with him in the places where he has promised to meet me, in the word, hearing the preaching of the word, in the sacraments that we will enjoy in just a few moments, and in the gathering of God's people. He is meeting with us. We are abiding with him here. He is teaching us that we may go out and bear more fruit for him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you that you have called us to abide. We thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit that empowers us to abide in you. Lord, you would comfort us today with this truth, that we would believe it, that we would abide in your word, abide in our obedience, and abide in your love. We thank you for loving us, O Lord. You did not have to, but you chose to pour out your kindness upon us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.